While federal agencies search endlessly to hire people skilled in cybersecurity, local government might have a different way. How about enlisting volunteers to help protect critical infrastructure from cyber attacks? That's the idea behind a detailed set of recommendations from the law firm McDermott, Will and Emery. We get more now from attorney Mark Schreiber. Mr. Schreiber, good to have you with us. Thanks so much. My first question is what would cause a big and well-known law firm like MWE to undertake a report on helping state and local and municipal, county, whatever, government with enlisting volunteers in cybersecurity, of all things. We identified a deficit because we know how difficult it is to respond to data breaches and do cyber assessments and try to implement all the terrific steps CISA has alerted us to. So, From a number of sources, we became aware that even smaller entities would have even more difficulties in doing this. So we decided to try to canvas the area. We thought it would be pretty simple to identify the nonprofits, state or other entities or universities that are doing this. It turned out to be a major task, in part because things were siloed. Places didn't know about each other, and it took a lot more work than we thought. And interestingly, I mean, at the federal level, they may not accept volunteer help or volunteer or services for no consideration. It's not legal at the federal level, except under very certain circumstances. Is it easier to do from a legal standpoint for, say, I'm a small town and I don't want to be held up for $10 million in Bitcoin from some Russian schnook, and therefore I need some help that I don't have in town, and the local college down the street might be able to help. Can they do that? Yeah, there are a number of resources now. At the state level, they may have to jump through some other hoops, but it may be that there's a nonprofit available that will help out or provide volunteer services. And there are some university clinics that are now doing this. So there are a variety of sources out there. The point you raise is a good one. Currently, trying to do volunteer services or cyber services with a federal government has lots of limitations. And that was part of the reason to look at the other resources or entities out there doing that. But several states on their own have come up with programs. And then, as I mentioned, there are a variety of nonprofits either being formed or that exist that are doing this. And we should point out that the danger at the state, local, municipal level is very real. And we've seen some serious breaches, both for governments at that level and also for nonprofit organizations like healthcare groups. Nobody is immune. It doesn't matter whether you're big or small. The hits keep coming, and we know from our experience how difficult and imposing it is, for example, to respond to a ransomware attack or if it locks up certain data that's critical. And that was part of the concern. How do we better marshal these existing resources? And that got us to some of the basics of how do you even identify what resources are there for cyber volunteering? We're speaking with Mark Schreiber. He's senior counsel with McDermott, Will, and Emery. And so you've developed a framework that has a number of actions that a entity should take to be able to ingest volunteers in cyber. Maybe briefly review what those steps are. Sure. Well, the first item was, where do you go? I mean, if you want to volunteer, where's the platform, the dashboard, the website where you could sign up? 
And we found that those were essentially missing in the U.S. One of the recommendations to CISA or others was to produce a national website listing all of these resources. A second piece of it was to have a dashboard that connects needy recipients with willing volunteers or companies that would be donating services of their employees. So just the matchmaking service needed to be orchestrated and developed more fully. And that may be done on a state-by-state basis, could be done by some nonprofits operating nationally. And as I mentioned, there are a couple of university clinics, MIT, UC Berkeley, that are doing that already with the hope of expanding it further. And then, of course, you got the legal issues. You know, what's the agreement amongst the parties, the volunteers, the recipient entities? What about indemnities or scope of uh, services? The kind of things that when we engage forensic firms, we deal with every day. But it may be that nonprofits or others aren't used to that. Maybe they need a model. So we created a model legal framework or at least model template agreements for that. Interesting. And getting back to that idea of donation of services, even by profit-making organizations, you know, law firms have a pro bono unit usually or devote a certain number of hours per year, I guess, divided among the attorneys to do pro bono. Can you envision where cybersecurity companies that offer services could maybe set aside a certain portion of their workforce for pro bono in the public interest? Precisely so, and a number of large consulting and forensic companies already are doing that or are willing to do it. So a couple of the major forensic companies have donated, they've indicated they'd be willing to do more. But again, where do they go? Where's the hub? How's it all connected? And one of the major incentives to corporate CSR is a platform to make the donations or to allow their employees to volunteer themselves or self-volunteer because they want to do this activity. So it was really an organizational task or structure that we identified that needed more work and coordination. Similarly, like our law firm, this entire cyber volunteer project was a pro bono one. All right. Well, we thank you for that one. And what types of organizations do you feel are most ripe for using volunteer help? Because if you are a, I don't know, mid-sized city, say of forty or 50,000 people, you've also got a contracting operation and possibly even a grant-making operation that might originate with federal funds. You've got to stay out of conflict of interest situations, both for your own people and for the entity that is volunteering the service. So who's eligible? I mean, what are the types of entities best suited to take in volunteer work? Yeah, it's a good question because the range of need is constant and enormous. So how local cities or towns navigate through that process or the procurement process or the limitations is one set of issues. But some hospitals or other regional entities may not be connected with a city government. They may operate on their own or individually. And so those may not be quite as restricted in recipient services. But let's keep in mind, 
what the goal here is. The goal is to better insulate small, rural, and other critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. And there's got to be a way to cut through some of the red tape to do that. The threat actors trying to pull out ransomware extortion demands don't care about your conflicts. They want your money. So I'm confident that with enough attention and thought process given to this, there will be structural alternatives to allow cyber volunteering. And a number of the nonprofits are doing this already. So given the range of need, there's got to be a way to restructure or better marshal our resources for cyber volunteering. And how are you promulgating this work, this piece of work with the framework that you have and and the advice for those entities to set up volunteer networks? Well, our recommendations, including holding a national cyber volunteer conference, someone to decide they want to do a national website on this, somebody else to help identify what the appropriate metrics ought to be, somebody or other agencies will pick up the ball, I suspect, because this need is so demanding. Mark Schreiber is Senior Counsel with McDermott, Will & Emery. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview and a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.